0: So this little fish, which doesn't look like it has any special adaptations for this game, starts flinging itself up a waterfall, and when it touches the sidewall of the waterfall, it sticks. It turns out that it's got a little suction cup on its belly. And while it's stuck on, it'll flail around and move up a little further. And it just, it basically flails its way up a waterfall.
1: This is Science for the People. This week is all about fish all about all the fish, actually. Those of you who have listened for a while might realize that I'm a new voice on the show. I'm Carolyn Wilkie and I'm a science journalist. I'm a staff writer at Science News for Students. I'm joining the Science for the People crew and I'll be sharing stuff in science that ranges from fun and fascinating to important and worth knowing about. I'm talking today with Adam Summers. Adam is a professor of biology at the University of Washington's Friday Harbor Labs. Adam is really into fish so much so that he's made it his mission to CT scan every species of fish. That's tens of thousands of different types of fish. His research gets the nitty-gritty of what makes different fish unique, how they've evolved, and how their bodies work, sometimes in weird and wild and really cool ways. And he's advised Disney about fish and animals depicted in the Finding Nemo movies. Adam, thanks so much for talking with me today.
0: Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you, Carolyn.
1: So let's talk about the Scan All Fishes project. Uh, The goal of this project is to scan the variety of fish that live on the earth, some 34,000 species. And that project started in 2016, right? Yes. So how far along are you and your team um, in scanning all these fish?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I should probably look before answering, but um, I'll give you a somewhat precise answer. I think I'm about 4,500 species in and almost 10,000 specimens, but I can give you a more exact number by simply looking on the World Wide web at the, uh, at the Scan All Fishes website, which has, uh, which has the numbers as of today. So let's see. As of today, we have scanned 4,551 species and 9,883 specimens. Wow. So if I had been, pretty hardcore about trying to get to the full 34,000 or so, I would have insisted that nobody scan any species twice. But what it turns out to be is that you actually want lots and lots of scans of some fish. So some people like uh, Corey Evans, for instance, has been here. Um, He's now a professor at Rice. And he's been here scanning electric fish. And he's scanned 300 specimens of electric fish, but only four species. Because he's interested in how they grow and how, they, how the different uh, sexes change shape as they get bigger. And so there's lots of cases where we've got you know, many, many, many of the same fish in order to try and figure out variation. And so that's how we end up with 4,500 species, but almost 10,000 specimens.
1: Mm, okay. So how long do you think this will take to scan all the fishes?
0: Um, till I die. Uh, You know, I'm not saying that, that, I mean, I I say that not particularly facetiously. I've been scanning fishes for 25 years, and I don't plan to stop. Um, Mm -hmm. There are 34,000 species of fish today. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the last two years, I've described five with my colleague, Kevin Conway. So, you know, there's always new ones to be found. So there will always be new ones to scan. But we're planning on scanning every species of fish. I suspect that we'll get within 10% of done in the next four years, the ultimate goal though is to CT scan every fish, right? I mean, I just like every single fish, just every one of them, all that data. I I, I'm a big fan of data. So I, I scan these things and then my colleagues and I put them up on the web for anyone to download for any purpose.
1: Yeah. So there are so many things I want to unpack in there. Um, can you tell me why it'll be easy to get those first easier to get those first 90% of fish and and what it will be yeah why it will be more difficult to get the last last set and finish it
0: off Well there's a lot of good logistical reasons I mean for one thing a, a, a number of fish species are not known from very many specimens and so ones that are not known from very many specimens especially if they're not in museums that are easily accessible we may never get to CT scanning. Um, there's also the problem of scanning very, very large fish. My CT scanner scans small things, and commercial medical CT scanners will scan some big things. But really big adult things are probably beyond getting scanned whole. Uh, people always ask me, when are you going to do a whale shark? And we've actually got four uh baby whale sharks that we've scanned but i don't know that there's any way we'd ever get an adult whale shark the head could be 6 or 7 feet across mm. and while there is a ct scanner that'll do it boeing uh aircraft company has a ct scanner that'll scan a full size jet engine um fully assembled so there is a, a ct scanner that'll do it but do you really want to is it is it worth moving Several tons of dead fish to the facility where you might CT scan it. And, you know, I'm always interested in trying to find good value for money in terms of getting research done. And I'm not sure that that last few percent really matters much from the scientific point of view. So for big, huge fish, we'll probably make do with little ones, little examples. Um, But there's also probably just a bunch of fish we'll miss.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So why did you and your team decide that you should? like scan all the fish
0: oh it was a joke i mean it started it started as a twitter joke do do you know twitter at all yes i do yeah so uh it's this thing the young people use where you put like a little tiny thing on the web and they use these these hashtags with a pound sign and then some words and I had some donors give me a CT scanner. And so down the hall from my office, I had a CT scanner and I started carrying my favorite fish down there and scanning them and making pretty pictures and posting them on Twitter with a hashtag. And the reason I put the hashtag on there was because people would tweet back at me. You know, they'd say, yeah, that's a really pretty, I don't know, pirate perch. I love that. It's very good looking. When are you going to scan? And then they'd name their favorite fish. What's your what's your favorite fish, Carolyn?
1: I really don't know, because probably like most people, I haven't thought about them too much except for eating them.
0: Well, so what's your favorite one?
1: What's my favorite one? Ooh. Well, right now I think, so I've never eaten one of these, but right now I think pufferfish are pretty cool. Perfect. Uh, That's a
0: perfect answer, right? So you'd tweet back at me and say, that's a very nice pirate perch, but when are you going to scan a pufferfish? And because I'm a smart aleck, I would tweet back with the hashtag pound scan all fish. Don't worry. I'm going to get to your puffer fish. But I was really joking because, you know, each scan took me three, four five hours. 33, 34,000 species of fish. That's more hours than I have left on the planet. So that wasn't going to happen. But um, I, I, I kind of decided that it was a worthwhile ambition and so we started trying to figure out how to scan faster and with a grad student who's who's in Oregon named Thaddeus Busser, uh, we developed a way to scan multiple fish at once and so we can scan like 20 fish at the same time but when you can do that suddenly the numbers start to make much much more sense and so we went from it being a joke of scan all fish to by golly, we're really going to do it. And then I got in a little bit of a Twitter war with a guy named, um, uh, a, a guy at the university of Florida named Dave Blackburn. And he said he was going to scan all the frogs. And I said, you know, why would you scan all the frogs? There's only like nine species. And he said, why would you scan all the fish? They all look alike. And, you know, we're trading insults over who's going to scan all these things. And suddenly we, we realized we were pretty serious about doing it. We should try and get funding to do it. And so David organized 15 museums and approached NSF and wrote a really beautiful proposal. And we've got a, a program called Overt, which is scanning one genus of every species of vertebrate. And all of this stuff is going up for free on MorphoSource for anyone to use.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. We'll get back to that later. But um, one thing that I want to make sure I ask is, what are you all hoping that you'll learn by scanning all the fishes?
0: Well, um, when you say, what are you hoping to learn? Do you mean me or do you mean science writ large? Because I have I, I, I have very particular interests in this, but I try not to let my particular interests really dictate what exactly is going on in the project. So. Mm. We scan lots and lots of things that basically I'm not particularly interested in today. I like fish armor, how fish burrow, how they stick to things. And so I've got a a, a limited suite of fish that I'm trying to scan, maybe 5,000. Um, but other people will show up like, uh, Matt Coleman, uh, who, or uh, Matt Coleman, who's come to the lab to scan, uh, piranhas or Cassandra Donatelli, who's spend a lot of time in the lab scanning, elongate fishes. And, you know, their missions are totally different than, than mine. But the the net result is that more fish get scanned and put up on the web. And then once they're up on the web, then we don't really have any control over what happens with the data, which is good, right? So uh, you get someone like um, this German fellow, Michael Hoffman, who jumped on our website and downloaded all of the data and has figured out the 3D position of all of the ear bones in the fishes that we've scanned. So he's done something that we never would have done with these data. So when you ask, what do I hope to learn? I I hope to learn some pretty specific things having to do with my research in comparative biomechanics. But I hope that the world ends up learning all the sorts of things that can be learned from the skeletons of fishes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Can you elaborate that on on that a little bit? Um what is there to learn about the skeletons of fishes?
0: Uh you mean you mean what can be learned from fish skeletons? Lots and lots and lots of things. So uh Matt Coleman, when he was looking at, at the skeletons of piranhas, uh realized that the cut bones that he was seeing Reflected a really bizarre lifestyle where these fish were actually nipping at each other to communicate because the water is quite turbid. It was hard to see. And so they had to be really well armored because, of course, piranhas have really good teeth. And so if you're, if you're nipping in order to, to, to convey information, you're also actually doing some damage. So you can learn behavior by looking at bones. Um, Cassandra Donatelli, uh, who's in Canada, um, uh, is a, is a biorobotics and fish locomotion expert. And, you know, like me, she's a sort of defrocked engineer who's turned to biology. And, um, she has scanned all of these elongate fishes in order to understand how the architecture of the spine dictates how they, swim through the water. And so she's generating data that she hopes will be applied to uh, robotic swimming uh, devices that are elongate and able to penetrate, uh, you know, wrecks and, and places that are, that are quite enclosed and still be able to move with a good deal of speed. So uh, there's a, an incredibly wide range of things that you might learn from the skeletons of fishes.
1: Yeah. No kidding. Um, so I also want to ask you a little bit about how I, I read some articles about how your work in scanning fishes started. And you also mentioned that you used hospital, uh, CT scanners. Um, what was that like? Like what was it like to carry dead fish into hospitals and.
0: Well, it's always um, an adventure. I mean, you know, the, the, my scanning career started out in Florida, um, I I took advantage of the uh, folks at the Shriners Hospital for Children in Tampa, and um, they had a a little separate CT scan facility, and periodically they'd need it at night, so they had a night person on, but they rarely were using it full-time. And so I worked out an arrangement with the fellow who ran the the scanning facility that uh, He'd let me come in with a garbage bag full of dead critters and, um, we would, we would CT scan them. I'd basically bring him candy and he would let me uh, walk away with data. It was a very, it was a very good deal.
1: But you couldn't get enough samples in that way. So that's why you've got your own scanner for your lab.
0: Um, uh, no, it's not really that I couldn't get enough samples in that way. In fact, uh, a, a fellow named Mason Dean, who's, uh, who's in Germany um, and worked with me for a number of years, he, he and I CT scanned about a third of the diversity of cartilaginous fishes in exactly that way, just taking big garbage bags or Ziploc bags full of different species and stuffing them in medical scanners. Basically, on a, on a volunteer uh, basis, the, the medical scanners just let us use it for free. So,
1: How does this data help you investigate fish in, in creative and different ways than you wouldn't be able to otherwise?
0: Uh, well, I mean, once you've got a CT scan of a fish, you know, you've got the raw material to do any number of things. Um, one of the ones that I do quite often because I find holding something in my hand is incredibly helpful for understanding it is I 3d print things. So from a CT scan, you can make a 3d printable surface and, you know, then we have a bunch of 3D printers in the labs and uh, we print these things out and, you know, you can you can just see the anatomy, which is very, very helpful. But you can also do things like um, uh, add motors to it. So Stacy Farina, who's a professor at Howard uh, University, she and I worked on a robotic breathing fish to try and understand how the movements of the gills pushed water uh Across the gills, uh, how how the movement of the operculi, the things the covers of the gills, pushed water across the gills. So, uh, you know, we worked on on different kinds of anatomies that we printed out. So it's literally three D printouts that you then put servos on and things in order to uh, in order to make them do some action. Um, the other thing that we do is, is sometimes we make. Little anatomy, really tiny anatomy, much, much, much bigger. So, uh, there's a a neat project that Thaddeus Booser and Brian Sedloskis are are working on with me that they have this idea that these fish actually, um, this group of fish called sculpins, actually fight each other like deer. They have antlers and they lock up the antlers and try and wrestle each other. And so, we can print what we think are their antlers really big like as big as deer antlers and then look at them side by side and say do these things actually look like deer antlers and son of a gun they really really do so uh, a lot of times we find this 3d printing stuff can tell us something about small anatomy simply because the small anatomy is now writ large
1: Hmm, that's really neat about the sculpins are there Are there many other examples of fighting fish or fish that that defend themselves? There's
0: lots of fish. There's lots and lots and lots of fish that fight. Um, But there are, I I cannot think of another group of fish that's known to use uh, their spines in this way. So some fish that fight um, kissing gouramis, which are a really cool aquarium fish, will lock up their jaws and wrestle around. holding onto each other's jaws. Uh, But other fish, you know, lots, lots of fish fight, including, you know, the aptly named Siamese fighting fish. Um, Those things, those things fight each other like crazy. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's not an uncommon behavior because there's all sorts of reasons to fight, you know, you fight over territories. You can fight over mates. You know, there's just tons and tons and tons of reasons.
1: Yeah. Um, I have to ask, what is the strangest thing that you've
0: scanned? Well, I have no idea. I mean, oh, goodness, there's been lots and lots of surprises. I think um, at one point, uh, Carly Cohen uh, is very interested in the shape of teeth. And so we were looking at teeth and she CT scanned a fish that had another fish inside it. And, you know, it had eaten this other fish. And, and so it, most fishes have fish have teeth on their jaws, just the way you do. But then they also have teeth in their throat. And those teeth in the throat are called pharyngeal teeth. And this fish that had eaten the other fish had pharyngeal teeth and the fish it ate had pharyngeal teeth. So we had four sets of jaws with four different sets of teeth in one CT scan. That was that was pretty remarkable.
1: Okay, so in preparing to talk with you, I've come across some of the articles that you've written for the public, not just on fish, but also on the biomechanics of other animals too. And I also saw that you once had an art gallery display of fish specimens that you had uh, imaged by staining their bones and cartilage. So it seems like you love fish like so much, not just to study them, but also to share them with other people. So what is it about fish um, fish that so captivates you
0: oh dear um i i don't know that i i could answer what it is about fish i mean honestly i think it's it, it's form it's it's shape um i i do love fish i love the the way they move and i love their their unexpected shapes and colors and habits but i'm also a a pretty avid natural historian i like being outdoors and, and and wandering around and catching things and flipping rocks and and some of those things aren't fishes there's a lot of invertebrates in there and then there's the the lobe fin fishes you know because of course we're also fishes um so there's what do you the mean? mammals and birds and reptiles um well you know you may have heard of neil Shubin's book your inner fish um that's i mean it's, it's really quite literal um there's no place. On the evolutionary tree, that you could sort of draw a hash mark and say, This is a fish. Above this are fish and not include yourself. Right? Because you would certainly agree that a flatfish is a fish, right? A flounder, a salmon, those are fish, right? Mm hmm. Shark? Is it a fish? Yes. Okay. Lungfish? Sure. zelocanth.
1: Ah, uh, you are now getting into words that I don't know. What's a zelocanth?
0: A coelacanth is that crazy deep-sea thing off of Africa. But um, it definitely looks fishy. You can Google it up. Once you and- get into that lineage, um, further, further along that clade are amphibians. So salamanders, frogs, sicilians. And then squamate reptiles and anapsids, turtles, mammals, uh, the diapsids and the archosaurs, uh, things like crocodilians and birds. So once you've admitted that lungfish and sharks are fish, inevitably you come to the conclusion that you too must be a fish. And so... I'm really interested in form, in how things are shaped and how they ended up shaped that way. So uh, an evolutionary comparative morphologist is, is one of the titles that you might hang on my door. Quite um, a mouthful. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it is. It's probably too much. But the, the beauty of the skeletal form is for me, uh, inspirational. It's it's part of why I love doing what I do. And so, for me, it's made total sense to have an art show of cleared and stained fishes, because cleared and stained fishes are absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that I had cleared and stained them in order to learn something about their skeletons was really the, the motivation for getting the clearing and staining didn't matter. What mattered was I had these beautiful, complicated red and blue fishes um, that that you could see right through. And, and so there's this sort of ghostly loveliness to an embryonic hammerhead shark sort of swimming diagonally up a page. And I I think that that's all part and parcel of the science I do is sort of recognizing the beauty of the data.
1: Mm. Can you give me an example of uh, one of the motions in fish that you found really interesting and wanted to study?
0: Um, Yeah, I I can give you, I can give you lots. So I'll give you one that I, I, I think is pretty amazing. And that's, Uh, sort of puttering around inside my head right now. And that is there's a really neat uh, marine fish called a gurnard. These things um, have really long, broad pectoral fins. The pectoral fins, which are the analogs to your arms, are basically semi- uh, they're almost circular. They're almost a full circle. They stick out from the sides of the fish and they have Big eyes drawn on them and they, the fish flap them out and sort of make themselves look about four times as big, but they, they glide along on the sea, on the sea floor, right above the bottom and they sort of pick at the food at the bottom, the front. They pick at the bottom looking for food with these crazy little fin rays that are in front. Of these big semicircular display things that are good for gliding. And they actually start picking through the bottom and flipping rocks. It's, it's, it's incredibly dexterous what they're doing. It really looks like they're pawing through the bottom with their hands, mm. but they don't have hands. They've got these weird extra fin rays at the front that aren't that aren't attached to the rest of the of the fin and so it's it's really a neat thing um and and i'm very interested in how they do it how this sort of behavior evolved what kinds of muscles might be used to set long thin fingers to work doing something completely different like that yeah
1: Have you started to investigate that?
0: No. Well, I've, I've now, I've now watched, I've now watched a lot of video of it. Um, and I've sort of started thinking about, um, how we might do that.
1: Um, is watching video or, uh, seeing these fish out in the wild. Um, how do you come up with, with what fish you want to study?
0: Oh, I'm very much the sort of person who's inspired by what they see in nature. Mm-hmm. So for me, the the key moment is seeing something in nature and watching it happen. And then I'm inspired to try and figure out how that could happen. I I I often say that, you know, my my training as an engineer, you know, which my undergraduate degrees are in engineering and math. I never took a biology course as a as a youngster. Um I, In my training, I think, and also sort of my natural inclinations has left me with a lot of intuition about how things should work. You know, if you drop a ball, it should bounce this high kind of things, you know, just intuitions about how things should go. And what's amazing about really paying attention in nature is a lot of things do not behave the way they should. And every single time you see something not behaving the way it should, it's very likely there's an interesting problem there. It's very likely there's some cool science that's underlying this behavior that's not happening the way it should. You know?
1: Can it, yeah. Can you give me an example of that?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of them. I'll tell you about uh, about. A, a woman named Kelly Diamond, who's just finished her PhD. She's post here in Seattle. She finished her PhD um, at Clemson with Rick Blob, working on these little fish that they basically look like, I don't know, crippled minnows. They're a thing called a goby. And when I say crippled minnow, I say cri- crippled because they, they don't swim around much. They kind of just hang out on the bottom. And if you just saw them doing that, you'd be unimpressed. Nothing particularly exciting. But these are fish found in the freshwater streams of Hawaii, and they actually climb waterfalls. So this little fish, which doesn't look like it has any special adaptations for this game, starts flinging itself up a waterfall, and when it touches the sidewall of the waterfall, it sticks. It turns out that it's got a little suction cup on its belly. And while it's stuck on, it'll flail around and move up a little further. And it just, it basically flails its way up a waterfall. That's bizarre. You know, it, when you watch it happen, you, you, can't, you can't really believe that the thing isn't being drawn forward on a piece of string. I'll give you another example, because it is a fish being drawn forward on a piece of string. Jimmy Liao at, uh, at the University of Florida's Whitney Marine Lab, did this spectacular experiment uh, in, in when he was getting his PhD. He set up a flume. A flume is basically a, it's like a treadmill, except instead of a belt and putting a person on it, it's water. And you pump water from the front end to the back end of the flume, and a fish can swim in it and not move. You're, you can just watch it swim, and it doesn't make any progress. So it's a kind of magical swim-in-place machine. And he took a flume and he put several obstacles in the flume. Just by obstacles, I mean just vertical cylindrical pipes. So now you've got a flume with, call it, three or four vertical pipes sitting there disturbing the flow. He then took a dead trout and he put a piece of string in its nose so that it would face forward up the current. But he didn't pull on the string. He just oriented the fish in the flow and it swam upstream. Its dead body progressed from area of low pressure to area of low pressure behind these obstacles. And what Jimmy showed is that when we watch a fish swim upstream, it may look really energetically expensive, but even a dead fish can do it because they're really taking advantage of all of the crazy turbulent flow that's leading to various Uh, back eddies and things so they're actually flowing upstream even though the majority of the water is headed downstream there are these eddies that are going the other way does that make sense
1: i think so so it's a specific type of fish that's evolved to be able to take advantage of turbulent gushing really kind of violent flow in a stream
0: well um yes it it, it it you know it's a particular kind of fish that lives in streams like this so trout you know live in streams that's where people fish for them and they have evolved to take advantage of this but you know once they're dead i mean really all you're dealing with is their body shape and so yeah. their body shape and the fact that they're in turbulent flow means they can they can swim upstream dead That's amazing.
1: Yeah, that that is really amazing. And it kind of, I don't know, defies what I what I think of as being normal. It seems like it can sort of float upstream.
0: Yes, exactly. And and when you have that feeling of looking at it and going, that's not that's not right. That's not possible. I'm I'm looking at that wrong. That's where the good science lives, right? That's where really neat problems are found when your perception of what should be right is challenged.
1: Ah, okay. And you've also sort of sought to kind of exploit these systems in your work too, right? So those fish that that somehow use suction to move
0: up oh, surfaces. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, we, um, you know, we also, like Kelly Diamond, we also work on, on sticky fish in my lab, uh, a totally different group, a different independent radiation of fish that stick um, these ones are called clingfish, and we've essentially stolen their trick. So you know you can you can see something in the wild and go, oh, that's really cool, but you can't um, you can't patent an animal. You have to actually learn the trick they're using, and then you can patent the trick. And so we um, we figured out how sticky fish like clingfish were sticking to really irregular rocks. And we were able to manufacture uh, suction cups based on that, based on that um, way of, 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 adhering to stuff.
1: Yeah. So. so how, how do they stick to rocks? How do the ones that you studied stick to rocks?
0: Well, they take advantage of some very sensible things that you would think would be really good for suction cups. They have, they're incredibly soft, so they follow contours because if you're talking about something rough, it's really important to be able to follow the contour. And so they're very soft, and they have a lot of little tiny hairs on the underside of the cup that interlock with any irregularities that happen to be uh, on the substrate. The important thing there is that the little hairs keep the suction cup from failing the way most suction cups fail. When a normal suction cup fails, the edges move towards the center of the cup, and that causes the circumference of the cup to decrease. And so as the cup is pulled on, more and more material is being pushed into the edges of the cup, which eventually causes it to fail by buckling. And so to defend against failure by buckling, what you would do normally is you'd thicken the material at the edge or make it stiffer. And the problem with doing that for wanting to stick to rough surfaces is once you've thickened the edge and made it stiffer, it doesn't follow the contours anymore. So it's a bad suction cup. So we sort of use a different set of design parameters in order to generate suction cups that do a very different thing.
1: Right. So basically you're looking to inspiration, you're looking for inspiration to these animals, but trying to come up with, you know, maybe even ways to, to do better.
0: Yes, absolutely. We're always looking to the, to the organisms themselves for, for the inspiration. You know, that's very much the, the way of doing business.
1: Yeah. So, another thing I found really cool when I was looking through your work is that it seems like some of the ways that you study animals is is rather unusual. So, um, I saw some of your work on shark teeth, in which uh, you and your colleagues had attached these teeth to saw blades um, to see how they work when they are tearing back and forth. Um, yeah, and it that seems, was. You know, yeah, go ahead and tell me more. It just seems. I will-
0: you know, th- this, this was a project that came about because not because we saw something in the wild that we didn't believe, but instead, because we found some data that our colleagues had produced that we didn't believe. Um, it's not that we didn't believe the data, it's that we didn't believe that it could possibly reflect reality. So uh, the data are these, if you hand an expert on shark's teeth, a tooth, they can tell you what species of shark it came from. So teeth are incredibly variable. So shark's teeth are variable. The other thing is that apparently, according to published data, if you take a shark's tooth and you push it into prey, it doesn't matter what shark's tooth you push, they all push into the prey equally easily. So those two facts seem very much at odds to me. If all the shapes work the same way, why are there different shapes? Why are the teeth so distinctive that I can tell you what species they are, and yet apparently they all work the same way? And I had this question bubbling around in my head when I ran into a woman who at the time was an undergraduate. Now she's a a, a senior graduate student at UC Davis. Her name is Catherine Korn. And she and I got talking and, and, you know, like most of the people surrounding me, she's much, much smarter than I am. And so she and I started talking about this and realized that really what was interesting was that the sharks were using the teeth very differently than the scientists were testing the teeth. The scientists were gently and inexorably pushing the tooth into the prey. And when a shark bites, it's not gentle at all. It grabs a hole, and it shakes its head like a mad thing. And so the teeth are not being deployed really slowly. They're being deployed very quickly. And so Catherine came up with this thing we called Jawzall 1. And it's basically uh, one of those sawzalls, a destruction saw, you know, one of those reciprocating saws, with the longest blade you can get, which is about 30, 30 centimeters long, and uh, we ground all the teeth off the blades, and then we epoxied on fresh sharks teeth from several different species. And what was really neat was that right away, when you used the teeth the way they were supposed to be used by the fish, we saw huge differences in performance. So now, some teeth worked really well for cutting fish. Others worked really well for cutting skin. Others worked really well um, for cutting meat. And so, you know, different fish were, different teeth were suddenly working in very, very different ways. And that was very rewarding. We, we were sure that that had to be true at some level, but, you know, we had never actually seen it, you know, seen any evidence of it. So, yeah, that was, that was a good deal of fun.
1: Yeah. Are there, are there other odd examples of mismatches between the ways that biologists or researchers have studied animals and the ways that animals actually use their body parts that you've come across?
0: I, I don't know of another example where we've been so incredibly wrong, um, as in shark's teeth. Ah, okay. And we learned um, another neat thing, actually, from that about shark's teeth, which, which is, is, is still sort of bearing intellectual fruit. Um, and that is that the teeth got dull incredibly quickly. So within half a dozen swipes of the blade, the teeth were noticeably duller. So the, 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 the jaws all would move through the flesh more slowly. So what that means is, you know, there's, there's a trade-off. Anytime you have a a blade, and that is the, the trade-off between how sharp it is and how long it stays sharp, you would not argue that a butter knife is less sharp than a razor blade, right? I mean, that's very clear, but you've never in your life sharpened a butter knife or heard of anybody sharpening a butter knife, and you can't imagine a razor blade that would last even for a couple of weeks. So. There's this trade-off between how sharp something is and how long it stays sharp. And sharks are are incredibly far on the razor blade end of teeth. And what that what that means is they have to throw their teeth away very frequently. Very it's it, it we we think that it's likely that no shark's tooth bites more than one prey item.
1: Oh, wow. So how do they replace their teeth so often if, if they well, are? yeah,
0: that's, you know, you, you may have seen these pictures of sharks with their mouths open and you can just see rows and rows of teeth. They are continuously re- putting new teeth down. So there, there's very little data, but the data that are out there suggests maybe a tooth lives for 20 days in the functional position.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So a very, very short time.
1: Um, So I also want to ask you about your role advising for uh, Disney Pixar on finding Nemo and finding Dory. Um, Yeah, so that's, that's really cool. Um, So if I understand correctly, you were helping the animators depict how these animals move. Um, So like what sort of feedback or information were they were they asking you for for that movie?
0: Well, so I, I did a lot of different things for them. I was the, I, I was the main science consultant on Finding Nemo. So I'm the, I'm the very last credit of the movie. I worked on it for three years. Um, and in addition to sort of talking to them about fish and telling fish stories and things, I acted as, as their, um as their procurer of, um of good science speakers. So for instance, uh, we got Mimi Cole at Berkeley to give a talk on how seaweeds move, and Mark Denny at Stanford to talk about how ocean water moves, and Sanka Johnson, who's at Duke, uh, talked about how things are translucent in the sea. And so I arranged for all these lectures. I gave a bunch of lectures myself, and then I also ran a bunch of labs where we would go out to... Uh, the california academy of sciences and dissect fishes or um, i brought a lot of cleared and stained fishes in and we poked at them to sort of understand how skeletons worked so i did a lot of that kind of educational stuff and then also they asked me to look through things and and see uh what looked right so did these colors look right did they were they colors that could have been fish um we were actively not trying to imitate Particular species, except in the stars. Um, instead, we we're just trying to populate the tank with, or the, or the ocean with um, things that looked good and, and didn't scream, "I'm not a fish." So uh, there was a lot of reviewing the, the the movement of things, but the color patterns of things, relative densities, um, all, all sorts of things like that. And, and the truth is, within oh i bet 8 weeks of my starting um they had already gotten to the point where they could animate an ocean and i could not tell whether i was looking at the real ocean or a fake ocean but once they had gotten to that level of ability to fool me they had to then move away from that because it would have been very dislocating to have a perfect sim- simulacrum of the sea with talking fish zooming through it, right? I mean, it would have been jarring. And so they had to dial up the colors and dial up the motion. And they actually dialed up the uh, the crap in the water so that it was a little harder to see through in order to make it clear that this was a an imaginary world.
1: Oh, that's really neat to know. Um, I guess I'm curious, um, what were some of the ways that they had to bend, if they did, bend the rules of biology for the movie?
0: Oh, my goodness. They had to bend the rules of the biology all the time. Um, you know, it, it, it was a, a quite common thing for me to wander around the studio, which was not Disney at that point. It was it was Pixar. Um, okay. To, to wander around the studio saying, you know, this, this, this is no good. You know, a, a classic example was very early on. Uh, one of the wonderful artists, uh, Robin Cooper said, um, I, I'm not totally clear where the eyebrows are in fish. And I, I said, you know, fish, fish, have no eyebrows. They have no hair at all. They have no eyebrows. They have no muscles of facial expression." There's no, no eyebrows in fishes. And she, she, she looked at me and sort of said, um, well, our fish need eyebrows because you can't act without eyebrows. And if I really sort of stamped my foot too hard, they would say, Adam, you know, um, fish don't talk. So if the fish don't talk in this movie, it's going to be a very bad movie. You, you've got to let us lie but we need you to help us lie in a way that is sort of the least egregious. And so we actually went to a museum and started poking around at fish to find good places to put eyebrows, places that were, ah, that felt legal. And so that was, that was how the fish ended up with eyebrows where they were and, uh, you know, being able to, uh, to move their faces in ways that real fish simply can't, uh, and another classic one that we totally knew about and just had to lie was, uh, do you remember there was a scene where Marlon and Dory end up in a whale's mouth? Oh, yes. That, that's familiar? Mm-hmm. So they, they swim with the whale uh, a couple hundred miles uh, to, to avoid the storyline of having to sit there and wait for them to go all of these miles down from the Great Barrier Reef to Sydney. The whale takes them uh, part of the way. and. You you may not know this, but you remember how they exited the whale?
1: I don't.
0: <laughs> they came out the spout. The problem is that whales don't have a connection between their mouth and their spout. Mm. The spout's connected directly to the lungs, and the lungs don't have a connection to the esophagus. So... we had to lie because there's really only two ways out of the mouth that work in a whale one is to be spat out and that we couldn't figure out a good way to make that look right and the other is to be crapped out which would have been just terrible so you know they were definitely going out the spout regardless of whether that was uh, allowed or not by the pet theologist
1: i'll have to watch the movie more closely again and and see what other liberties were taken um but Those, you know, sorts of, I don't know, pieces of artistic license aside, do you feel like movies like this help the public to connect with sea creatures?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I I, I really do. I mean, actually, I think when it first came out, there was quite a bit of uh, fur about encouraging people to keep clownfish in tanks because... Uh, clownfish were being harvested from reefs, and it was incredibly hard on the reefs and you know that doesn't seem like a a very good thing to encourage people to do and and really what happened was it did increase the demand for clownfish in such a way that uh, it incentivized people captive breeding clownfish and now no clownfish that you buy comes from a reef; they all come from the uh, the captive-born pet trade.
1: So what's next for you? What uh, questions are out there about fish or fish anatomy that you are hoping to look into next?
0: Um, well, I'm, I'm really interested in how fish burrow. So I'm, I'm working on some robotic dorsal fin spines to try and understand how the movement of the dorsal fin spines helps flatfish burrow. Um, interested in armor, you know, fishes. So, uh, part of my motivation is I'd, I'd like to make some fish-based armor for my son for his skateboarding, so that he can uh, he can zoom around and, and have full mobility. And yet, when he falls, his armor locks up and and protects him. So, um, you know, I've got I, I've got motivations there to come up with new ways of doing things. Um, so, armors armor is definitely one that I'm interested in.
1: I I also really want to ask, just because I'm curious. But do you eat
0: fish? No, no, no. And I why not eat the skeletal muscles of tetrapods? Uh, I just have never done it. I, I don't like the smell. It's work. I just I can't imagine eating fish. I've got a pretty narrow diet. I don't eat many vegetables. I'm basically uh, a meat and potatoes guy.
1: <laughs> All right. Well. So, Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today.
0: Um, No worries. Thank you for uh, interviewing me.
1: I know I've learned some new things about fish, and I hope you have too. If you'd like to learn more about Adam, we've linked to his website and information about the Scan All Fishes project at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page where you can support our podcasting crew by donating. I'm excited to join you all. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.